0: She has a number of other very sorrowful stories in the way the Lord has written the script of her life. She wrote a book not long ago entitled Suffering is Never for Nothing. And in that book, she wrote, Why doesn't God do something about our suffering? And then she gave four responses He has, He did. He is and He will. It's a pretty good summary of today's sermon text. This passage shows us that God's plan is always working perfectly. We see the underside of the tapestry. It looks like a total mess. But on the the top, God is always weaving a perfect, tapestry for His glory and for our good. When Jesus Himself is being hunted as a scapegoat, not in the good biblical sense of that word, but by power-hungry men, God wants us to see that even in His only begotten's life, even in His precious Son's life, God wants us to see that He is seated squarely on His throne when horrific things are being planned to be done to His Son. Just when it may appear that everything's out of control and there's there's no possible way that God could have let such a thing happen in our life, in the lives of our loved ones, even in the life of our Lord, we're made, all, we're made aware all over again in passage after passage, like today's text, of the truth of Psalm 96.10. There's not a person on earth. There's not a regime on the planet among whom Psalm 96.10, the Lord does not reign. We're made aware over and over again and today's text will be another one of those places where we see it in hypercolor. Our God is in the heavens, Psalm 115.3, and He does whatsoever He pleases. In Psalm 135.6, we'll see again and again, like today's text, whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven, on earth, in the sea, and in all the deeps. Christians are to be comforted By knowing that disaster does not define our lives. And no work of evil men. No work of evil regimes. No work of God-belittling ideologies will ever thwart God's purpose. But this truth, this comfort, is not grounded in the power of positive thinking. That if you just believe enough, then... Maybe it'll all work out for good. Far from it. It's not in the power of positive thinking. Idealism. Our comfort in times of crisis is completely bound up in Christ and in His cross. So put simply, when we come to realize that God was superintending the details of the drama leading to the death of His innocent Son, then we who have fled to that Son for refuge from condemnation are enabled to embrace even our own suffering through the lens of divine purpose. It's only in light of Christ. And we see His sufferings carried out according to the eternal plan of God that we can make any sense out of our own suffering. I shudder to think of the enormity of the sorrows that are represented just in this room. If I said I'm going to put this down for a few minutes and I want you to turn to your neighbor, and I want you to tell them right now the hardest thing in your life, I imagine that most of us would be able, if we were willing to be honest, share something so shattering so hard, so difficult, so sorrowful. It doesn't seem like it makes any sense that God would let such a thing come into our lives. Last week, we saw the climactic sign of Jesus' pre-cross ministry. He raised a man from the dead Lazarus' resurrection from the dead reveals the power of the Lord Jesus over every conceivable obstacle and it shows that His authority has no bounds, no limits. And John even tells us why he included this series of seven signs, the resurrection of Lazarus being the climactic one in his pre-cross ministry. John tells us why He gave us all these signs. Namely, I'll quote John, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of His disciples, of which John was one. John saw it with his own eyes. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. That's the reason He wrote the book. So what does John do? Right after, he gives 44 verses to the most climactic expression of the all-authoritative power and reign of Jesus. He tells us that a bunch of people wanted to kill him. Let's read the passage, then ask for God's help, and then walk through it together. John 11, verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what He had done believed in Him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. He did not say this on his own initiative. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there He stayed with His disciples. Let's let's go to the throne room of the God who wrote that and ask for His help. Father, we have gathered today to worship You. As I've already alluded to, I shudder to think of the enormity of the burdens, the sorrows, the pains... The suffering is represented just in this room, but you know, Lord, you know. And you know that even though we've been told better, and many of us can quote some verses to support what we have been told, when suffering strikes, our default mechanism is often "why." And instead of laying blame at Your doorstep, I just pray over these precious people right now. In fact, Lord, I feel moved to do it sectionally. So everybody on my left, seated on the right facing me, I pray the breath of the Holy Spirit to blow over their lives. I pray today, Lord, whatever the burdens are in their hearts, in their lives, their sufferings, that they would flee To Christ, who sanctifies our deepest sorrows. I pray for those in the middle section all the way to the back. Lord, I pray that every challenge, every sorrow, every suffering, every pain, every question today, Lord, would You give a Gospel-injected lens that they can see that the sufferings of this present age do not compare with the glories that will soon be revealed to us. And Lord, for those on my right, left side of this congregation, we lift them to You together, Lord. We we bring them before Your throne and we pray, God, that in their deep pain, confusion, sorrow, loss, grief, whatever is touching their life that is in the category of affliction, oh God, would You come into that pain and purify, sanctify, show Your mighty power and grace. But do all that, Lord, for us all by drawing us close to the Savior who suffered and who is now glorified, with whom we will one day very soon sit in endless bliss. Bless us to that end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are four parts to verses 45 to 54. Verses 45 and 46 show us two responses to the raising of Lazarus. Verse 47 and 48 show us that the Sanhedrin had a fear of losing control. Verses 49 to 52 show us a prophecy from the high priest. His name is Caiaphas. And verses 53 and 54 show us the verdict, the sentence that the council arrived at. So four parts. First verse 45 and 46 The responses to to Jesus raising Lazarus, the the point is this, Jesus demands a response. There's two responses. We'll take them one at a time. You can see them there in verse 45. The word many and the word believed is in verse 45. That's one response. Many believed. The second response is in verse 46. Some, and then we could read from the surrounding context, betrayed. Some did not believe. So many believe and some betrayed. First, many believe. Perhaps verse 45 is a testament to genuine saving faith. Perhaps these people that were standing outside the sepulcher of Lazarus, this tomb, this cave, where this four-day dead man came out bound in death cloth and wrappings and his body was decomposing and the stench was so putrid that it made everybody's stomach turn. Maybe some of the people who saw Lazarus come out mummified from a cave tomb said, hmm, this must be the savior of the world. Maybe it's true faith in verse 45. Many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what He had done believed in Him. But John, no doubt, has a category of using that word not to mean saving faith every time. Perhaps it is saving faith, but I'll concede we simply don't have enough to go on in verse 45, especially as we read more about this group in chapter 12 as they're coming to have some conversations with Lazarus. Maybe it is saving faith. Maybe it's John chapter 1 verse 12 as many as believe in him Jesus gives them the right to become children of God. Maybe it's John 3:16 whosoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. But we don't know which one John has in view and the passage simply doesn't give us enough categories to be definitive, but John's primary purpose in saying many believed, is actually to highlight the consequence of those who do not. That, that's what He's aiming at. That's those who go to tell the Pharisees what Jesus had done, so some betrayed. The word many is in verse 45. The word some is in verse 46. Some betrayed. Some went to tell the Pharisees what was going on. This subset of the crowd who had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. You You can't miss that and gain an understanding of what John is emphasizing. These people, in verse 46, had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and had observed many believing in Jesus. And they were therefore motivated to be tattletales. How ridiculous is this? These people knew that if Jesus were left unchecked and allowed to go on raising people from the dead, that a lot of other people might believe in Him. And it would stir some commotion in Israel. And they knew ultimately that the Romans wouldn't like that. So perhaps they felt obligated to go tell their chief priests that we better keep this Jesus, man under control the objective reality of Jesus's lordship was right in front of them Lazarus had been raised from the dead but these people not only did not believe they could not believe Jesus told us so in the previous chapter you do not believe because you are not my sheep what if I raise somebody from the dead you can't believe in and of yourself in fact, I want to say to all of you right here, right now, with a broken heart full of love for you, praying, God knows, God knows I'm praying that every one of us would throw our helpless soul into the arms of the mighty Jesus for salvation. But if you don't believe, it's not because you don't have enough evidence, it's not because you haven't heard enough apologetic arguments. It's not because you hadn't compared an analysis of all the world religions. You don't believe because you don't want to. You've got all the evidence you need. The King of Glory got up from the dead, and you need no other evidence. So, which are you? Are you. In point number one, believing in Jesus, let's assume it's saving faith, as the Son of God. And as John said, I wrote these signs so that you would believe, you, every reader who ever picks up this book, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you would have life in His name. Are you one of those? Or are you one who would rather He be done away with and stop inconveniencing your pretty comfortable life. Now, of course, if Jesus wants to come along for the ride and be a supplement to your already pretty good life, then sure he can come along, but not, not so much that he just actually meddles with, you know, your business and starts rearranging the furniture in the living room of your heart. Which are you? That leads to number two, verse 47 and 48. Not only the two responses, but we see something about these Chief priests and Pharisees in verse 47? That is, they fear losing control. Verse 47 and 48, let's just read it again. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, isn't this absurd? In verse 47, this council is frustrated with themselves. Do you see that? What are we doing? What? What are we doing? This is counterproductive. I can imagine. I'll tell you about this council in just a minute. There's, there's, There's a bunch of people there. I can imagine that in this moment, before they even get to sit down and start deliberating and looking over the meeting minutes from their last agenda, uh, one guy looks at us and says, Bob, we told you last meeting that you have to do something about this Jesus guy. What are we doing? It's so ridiculous. What are we doing? Verse 48 is even more absurd. If we just let him go on like this, everybody's going to believe in him. Duh. Yeah, of course, just like you should. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. Let him go on like this? As if they gave Jesus permission to raise Lazarus from the dead. You mean, if we let him keep raising people from death, a bunch of people might believe in him? We better put a stop to that nonsense. Do you see how ridiculous this passage is? And it would be funny. And we would be able to laugh at them and talk about how absurd they are and how ridiculous they are. may not sound very sanctified and preachy talk, but how stupid they are. It would be funny. Unless you've looked in the mirror lately. You know, if you're in Christ, you believe in Him, If He's your hope in life and death, like we just sang from the Heidelberg Catechism is where that song came from. If you believe in Him, if your faith has found a resting place, it is the heart of God. Not device or creed. The heart of God for you in Christ. It's not because you're good at believing. It's not because you're smarter than the next person. God didn't shower his love on you because you were a little bit more deserving than the, the next guy. Of course he loves you. I mean, after all, look at you. I can imagine why he doesn't love her. I mean, look at her life. But me, after I mean, he got lucky to get somebody like me on his take. What was he doing all this time w- without me? I said it would be funny if it didn't sit, hit so close to home. You see, verse... 47 and 48 shows us the blindness of unbelief. Lost people are so blind, they can't see the blazing inferno of the light of the world standing right in front of them. But John includes in this passage not only the highlight of their foolishness. What are we doing? We can't let Him keep raising people from the dead. A bunch of people will believe in them. But especially... He's highlighting in verses 47 and 48. This is an official proceeding of the Jewish authorities. That's the reason this passage is in John 11. Verse 47, let your eyes fall on the word council. C-O-U-N-C-I-L, council. This is the Sanhedrin. We're told in verse 47 that this council is made up of chief priests and Pharisees. This was a deliberative body of 70 men, plus the chief priest, Caiaphas, who makes the 71st member. And they had to have 71 in the event that a tiebreaker was needed. The high priest would vote if it was tied at 35. So when John tells us in verse 47, they convened a council. Do you see that phrase, verse 47? That's New American Standard. He's wanting us to understand that this was an official moment of deliberation by the Jewish legal body. This is a deliberative body that was permitted by Rome to continue to operate as a local entity there in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas to keep the peace among the religious adherents to Judaism. In short, if there's no uproar among all these Jewish people that happen to be in the Israel and beyond territory, then Rome would allow them to continue to operate as is. If there's no uproar there's no disturbance to roman rule or civilizations jews you just go on and do your little religious stuff go to church like all the people who are driving by on the street and see our parking lot full again there go those sentimental hopers all the people that walk by on the sidewalks oh man they need a little crutch to get through life they can't make it without a little bit of religion rome was cool with judaism unless judaism started to disturb the peace so the sanhedrin was permitted under Roman authority, to continue to operate. But their job was make sure things don't get out of hand. Or else we'll have to step in ourselves. If there became a stir that was even remotely perceived to be a threat to Rome locally or beyond, then the Roman legal authorities would get involved. Hence why Pontius Pilate is part of Jesus' crucifixion. So when they see or when we see that they convened a council. Verse 47, this wasn't just a get-together. They didn't just happen to sit down and, and have lunch and start talking about this. These are religious rulers. They're operating officially as a deliberative body of appointed religious leaders. The ESV translates the phrase, they gathered the council. The NIV translates it, they called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, the Christian standard. They convened the Sanhedrin. John wants us to understand that this gathering of these men was a necessary part of Christ being condemned to die. Look at verse 53. So from that day on... They planned together to kill him. They took a vote and it passed. We will kill Jesus. But John wants us to know not only that the deliberative body planned to kill Jesus, but he wants us to know why. That's the second part of our second point. Our second point is pagans fear losing control. We've seen that this is a formal legal Jewish proceeding a Official gathering of the Sanhedrin. Number two, we're seeing under our second point, why? Why did they decide in verse 53 to kill Jesus? John tells us, verse 47 and 48. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing for this, this man? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and. Take away both our place and our nation. Well, There's three things that they fear. In verse 48, that a bunch of people will believe. Verse 48, that the Romans will come take away, quote, our place. And verse 48, the Romans will come take away our nation. They feared losing control. That's the motivation behind their decision to kill Jesus. Sproul said here at last, we discover the key motivation for the Jewish authorities' hatred of Jesus. Quote, they feared that Jesus' growing popularity might spark an uprising that the Romans would be forced to crush and that in the imposition of order, the Sanhedrin might lose what little authority they had under the Roman yoke. They didn't want to lose their little bit of control. At the end of the day, these men loved their perception of power. The premise of the Jewish Sanhedrin was as follows. Jesus is a Jew. He's causing a stir. This will lead Rome to come take power away from us. So let's kill Him. So let me ask you a question. Before we go to point three and four, What, what control are you afraid of losing? Don't dismiss that question. What sense of power do you not want to yield? Until you come to see that control or power that you presume to have, or that any nation or ruler appears to possess, like Rome, until you and I come to see that all influence, authority, control, power, all of it, 100% of it, is derivative, it's borrowed, it's on loan, it's entrusted to us from Jesus, then you will always be in fear of losing it. People typically apply for more prestigious positions when they send out their resume, not less. Why? Well, some of that can just be wonderfully good, God-ordered society that experience and expertise yields greater opportunity. That's good. But why is it that we're always trying to go up and not down? More and not less? You can either fear losing control or joyfully bow to the one who has it all to begin with. You you can either willingly bow to Jesus by faith now as the one who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. That was sermon two weeks ago. Or be forced to bow before Him when you depart this life. It's by choice or by force, but the option is not not to bow. Either way, you're going to one day acknowledge the all-powerful control that belongs to Jesus. And you will confess with your own lips and with your own voice in your own language, Jesus Christ is Lord. So before we just go past the question again, what control, what influence, what authority, what power are you afraid of losing? Ask somebody else. Husbands, ask your wives, do you see any patterns in my life that show I am not yielding my good, God-given place of influence to Christ? Is there anything in my life that looks at a step with the Holy Spirit when it comes to the Lordship of Jesus in how I treat you? Parents, ask your children. Do you see anything in me that seems to be a disconnect from your Heavenly Father and from the way He exercises His influence and His authority? Ask employees, ask friends, ask fellow church members. Notice what happens next. It's number three, it's verses 49 to 52. Lost people can ironically be so close. I said that 49-52 earlier is in our third point about the prophecy of Caiaphas. That's certainly what it is. That's what it contains. But John wants us to see irony. Lost people can ironically be so close. That's why it's impossible for us to separate the wheat from the tares on this side of eternity. That's why we won't get it perfect. We'll think that some people are genuine converts only to find out later that they weren't. And that's why Jesus said concerning the wheat and the tare, just let them grow together and the Father will sort it out at the end. They look the same on the outside, but only the wheat has the kernel inside the husk. Christ within. Lost people can be so ironically close. That's what John wants us to see about Caiaphas' prophecy in verses 49-52. to 52. Let's just read it again. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So we'll look at two parts of this. First, Caiaphas's prophecy, verse forty-nine and fifty, and then second, John's commentary, verses fifty-one and fifty-two. His his explanation, his emphasis on the irony. First, what does Caiaphas prophesy? Well, you saw it there in verse forty-nine and fifty. He says to his own counterparts, "You don't know anything," and uh, plenty of records let us know that this. Sanhedrin and the Sadducees in particular, who were the majority of the Sanhedrin, were pretty chippy with each other. They were pretty rude to each other. It was like that one-upsmanship that's so antithetical to the lordship of Jesus. Using your tongue to cut somebody rather than to build them up. Totally unchristian, but the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees of the Sanhedrin, who were the majority, Caiaphas being one of them, does that in verse 49. You don't know anything. And then he goes into his prophecy in verse 50. It's better. It's expedient. It's more advantageous for you that just one person perish than that the whole nation perish. So I read this passage this morning at our breakfast table to some of our kids and one of my kids said, okay, so Caiaphas' prophecy. Was he saying, yes, Jesus is going to be the one who dies for the whole nation. Instead of the whole nation dying and accomplishing nothing, Jesus is going to save us. Or to go on in the prophecy, Jesus is going to gather all God's people and Caiaphas is trusting him. Or was he saying, let's get rid of him instead of all of us dying? I don't know what you think it is, but I'm putting my accent in even the way I asked the question. John wants us to clearly understand that it's the second. Caiaphas is not believing. This isn't saving faith. In just a few chapters, John 18, seven chapters from now, we're about to see the Lord Jesus bound. Have you read about the sacrifices in the book of Leviticus? Bound and then put on the altar? In John 18, we're going to read about Jesus being bound like a sacrifice in the book of Leviticus and brought before who? The high priest. What's his name, John 18? Caiaphas. The same person who gives this prophecy in John 11. In John 18.22, Jesus has just answered Caiaphas' question truthfully. As soon as Jesus answers Caiaphas' question, an officer, John 18.22, punches Jesus in the face. Now I know sometimes we just read past those kind of sentences in the Bible. But if a grown man punches another grown man who's defenseless and bound in the face, not only will it hurt, it will likely draw blood. Maybe knocks him to the ground. Perhaps momentarily unconscious. Jesus gets punched in the face in front of Caiaphas, and Caiaphas does not so much as move a muscle in Jesus' defense. There's no way John wants us to take chapter 11 as Caiaphas' faith. Jesus is going to die in our place, Jesus is going to gather the whole nation of God's people into one body. But therein lies the irony. While I do not believe Caiaphas is expressing, expressing Christian faith in John 11, This meeting of the Sanhedrin. I do think he's using Jesus as a scapegoat to retain his own delusion of power. D.A. Carson puts it this way. When Caiaphas argues that Jesus must die for the people, he's using sacrificial language. He certainly did not mean this in a Christian sense. He probably meant that Jesus was to be devoted to death, sacrificed as a scapegoat in order to spare the nation and its leaders. Readers who live after the cross, like us, could not help but see more in Caiaphas' words than the Sanhedrin was able to see on that day. In this sentence, Jews are referred to both as a nation, ethnos, and as a people, laos. Both terms are taken together by Christians all through the New Testament, and applied to the church. John wants us to see the irony. Not that Caiaphas became a believer on this day, but that he found Christian verbiage for a useful Jesus. Go with me here. Jesus was very useful to Caiaphas. Caiaphas needed Jesus. Because Jesus was useful to him. Jesus was to Caiaphas a prop for his self-centeredness. Like I said at the beginning, of course, Jesus, you can come along for the ride as long as you hang out on the edges of the stratosphere somewhere in the orbit of my already pretty good life. That's not Christianity. Christianity is not finding a useful Jesus to do your bidding. Christianity is realizing your uselessness to him. He doesn't need you. You don't have any power, any influence you have over anybody's life or any workplace or any finance situation or in any other semblance of the word of influence, authority, power, oversight, any of that is all derivative All authority belongs to Him. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. We benefit Him zero. He's the benefactor. He's never benefited ever. You've never done anything to add anything to Him. He is not served by human hands as though He needed anything. Acts 17. Sproul said Caiaphas was utterly expedient. But there was more going on in this prophecy. John tells us that the high priest prophesied without knowing it. Jesus would die for the people and not just those among the Jews, but all His people. So with the high priest's blessing, Sproul concludes, plans for Jesus' execution move into high gear. Let's sacrifice Him so that we can go on living our already pretty good life. These men were turning from valiancy, they were turning away from magnanimity. They were turning away from that humble, Godward, Spirit-filled, Jesus-dependent faith for their own selfish comfort. They didn't want to lose anything for Jesus' sake. They wanted Jesus to lose everything for their sake. This is what Caiaphas' prophecy is all about. So I asked you earlier, what about you? I got my second, what about you? When it comes to Christ, or self-protection, or self-preservation, where do you stand? There's a reason we have moral examples all through the Old Testament who point us to Christ, no doubt. But in and of themselves, they are wonderful moral examples. We're told in Hebrews 11 that Moses chose to endure the reproach of Christ rather than to enjoy the riches of Egypt. Not the presence and blessing of Christ. The reproach of Christ. He chose ill treatment with the people of God because He looked to Him who is unseen. He wanted Christ more than he wanted all the treasuries of Egypt combined. Esther, chapter 4, chose identification with God's suffering and perishing people in place of her palace comfort. If I perish, I perish, so be it. I will identify myself with my king and with his people. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, chose the seven times hotter furnace over pagan worship. They wouldn't bow down in Daniel 3 because Jesus was more precious to them than any of man's applause. John the Baptist chose prophetic truth instead of having his head remain on his shoulders. In Mark chapter 6, when he put his callous finger in Herod's face and says, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So they decapitated him for it. Peter and John chose public witness to Jesus' resurrection and flogging instead of creature comforts in Acts 4. John, who wrote this Gospel, chose rather to be exiled to the island of Patmos than to have his mainland comforts because Revelation 1, because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus was better to John than creature comforts. And greatest of all, all the ones I've mentioned before point to this one. He's not only greatest, he's the fulfillment of every other one that stood in his place. He's the true and greater Esther who didn't say, if I perish, I perish. He said, when I perish, I perish. Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. So I asked, what about you? Fundamentally, these men were chasing their own selfish comfort at the expense of Jesus. That's what Caiaphas' prophecy is all about. Do you have a Jesus that does your bidding? Or do you have a Jesus to whom you bow? That leads us to the second part of our third point. Verses 51 and 52. It's John's commentary. This is the emphasis on the irony. John is the one, not Caiaphas, with the words in his mouth in verse 51. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative. John is telling us what he thinks about Caiaphas' prophecy. He's telling us that being high priest that year, he had been high priest since A.D. 18. He prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not only the nation, but to gather into one the people of God, the children of God who are scattered abroad. So here's what John's highlighting when I say irony. It's the irony of Caiaphas saying a bunch of true things about Jesus when we know good and well, he didn't have a clue what he was talking about. That's how this passage is thick with irony and there are two parts of John's explanation. One, he says, Caiaphas is saying Jesus will die for the nation. What Caiaphas meant is better him than me. That's what Caiaphas meant. He's going to die, not us. But you know on this side of the cross, especially those of you who are indwelt by the Jesus that Caiaphas was happy to have murdered, you know the double meaning. You see the irony because you live in the atmosphere of it. Substitutionary atonement. It's absolutely better that Jesus die for the people than the people die for Him. We could have benefited Him, not one iota, but His death secured for all God's people in all time, in all places, the atonement we must have. This is the precious doctrine, as I mentioned, of substitutionary atonement. It's why we sing hymns around here, like bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place, condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah! What a Savior. That's substitutionary atonement. It's the doctrine of propitiation. It's that the Lord Jesus climbed up on the altar and put His own priceless blood, spotless, unblemished, the blood of Christ on the mercy seat of heaven and satiated the wrath of God for sinners like you and me. He did die for the nation instead of the nation dying for him. And the second part of Caiaphas' prophecy, John wants us to see, also has ironic double meaning. Jesus' death would gather into one the scattered children of God. What Caiaphas meant is there's a diaspora. A diaspora. There's a scattered Israel. Persecutions happen. Babylonian captivity happened. Assyrian captivity happened. Samaritans are out there. God's Israel is everywhere. He was still thinking ethnic and national. But oh, how true this is. Just like Jesus said in the previous chapter, John 10.16, He does have sheep which are not of this fold and He will go get them. Just like He said in chapter 6, this is the Father's will. I will accomplish it. All that the Father has given Me, I'm quoting Jesus, will come to Me. He will gather into one the scattered children of God. He absolutely will do that. He's not talking about, Caiaphas is talking about national Israel. John's talking about you. The word is literally synagogue. Synagogue. He's going to church you. He's going to synagogue you. He's going to put you in the family. He's going to go out to the far reaches of the earth, to the four corners of the earth. Nothing's going to stop him. He will bring you to God. Or as Jesus put it, not to you, but to his Father. I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He will gather into one the scattered children of God. Leon Morris said both Caiaphas and John understood Jesus' death to be substitutionary. Either Jesus dies or the nation dies. If he dies, then the nation lives. If in his, it is either his life or theirs. And that's the way it is with us, beloved. Finally, verses 53 and 54, not only Caiaphas' prophecy and all the irony that's in it and the glorious gospel truth that the risen Jesus is going to bring to God all for whom He died, but verse 53 and 54, this is the verdict of the council. We've already touched it, so we can just say briefly that this is why the suffering that I alluded to at the beginning is not meaningless. All the pain in your life, all the suffering in your life, is not without divine purpose. Verse 53, so they, from that day on, they planned together to kill him. The plan of the Sanhedrin was, as I mentioned, a formal, deliberative, approved decision. The vote carried. He will die. What's also ironic about this passage is that had Jesus been instructed by the Father to do so, He could have obliterated these men on the spot. He could have incinerated them. Colossians 1 has always been true. In Him all things hold together. Hebrews 1 has always been true. He upholds all things by the word of His power. He sustained the lungs that were breathing the air that He created for these men to make their stupid and hellish choice. But this was part of God's plan. They officially resolved that Jesus would die as soon as possible. Verse 53. They would later put Jesus to trial, same people. But make no mistake, the ensuing trial through which these men paraded Jesus was not to gain a verdict, but to manipulate one. Their verdict had already been struck. Their decision had already been predetermined. And as as absurd as it sounds, it is true that they reached the verdict because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. We can't let him keep doing stuff like this. We have to kill him. But friends, here's where I started and where I stop. All of this is in accord with God's will. Jesus had said just a few paragraphs earlier at the end of John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. This command I received from my Father. It was an eternal counsel and covenant between the Father and the Son, that the Son would undertake the work of our redemption at the expense of His own life. So while this court made a decision to kill Jesus, no human court could kill Him without His consent. John wants us to see in verse 53 that the death sentence pronounced over Jesus was owing not to a bunch of ragtag people, a group of 70 plus one in the high priest Caiaphas, in this land, in this passage, but it's owing entirely to the eternal plan of God. Or, in the greatest of all the ironies, John wants us to see that he already knew that Jesus is the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. It was for this purpose that Jesus said before Pilate in John Uh, chapter 20, that he had been born. And in John 12, 27, the very next chapter, he says, this is the reason that I've come. So make no mistake, there's a mingling and a marriage between human responsibility and divine sovereignty in this passage and in all the ones where you find those themes. But the cross of Christ is exhibit A of how these things mingle together. Meaning these men, these men planned to kill Jesus, but they did so because of God's predetermined plan. Acts chapter 2, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Sounds like John 11. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you, nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. Predetermined plan of God, you did it. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. But God raised Him up, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for Him to be held by death's power. Acts chapter 4, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed him uh, through Him in your midst. Sounds like... John chapter 11, he was delivered over by the predetermined plan, foreknowledge of God. You nailed him to a cross, and God raised him up again. It was impossible for him to be held by its power. It's Acts 2 and Acts 4, both touching God's sovereign foreknowledge in the death of the Lord Jesus. So John just gives us a little hint that Jesus, not the Sanhedrin, was in total control, And John lets us know that Jesus slips away into obscurity. There's this little hint. We're going to kill Him. We just can't find Him. That's verse 54. He doesn't walk publicly anymore. But He goes away into the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. Ephraim he stayed there with his disciples. And the reason we know that Jesus, not the Sanhedrin, is in total control of the death of Jesus, that his suffering is not without divine purpose and intent, the reason we know that is because Jesus gets to decide when Jesus is going to die. Verse 55 starts to introduce when? The Passover. We'll hear about that, Lord willing, the next couple of sermons. The Passover of the Jews was near. You see, Jesus is ordering all the steps. This is the third Passover of His public ministry, and this is the one that the Father had determined that He would be slain for the sins of His people. We're not certain where the little town Ephraim was. Some conjecture, 15 miles away, 4 miles away, little hamlet, bigger city. We don't know exactly. But what John does want us to see is that Jesus is in control of the entire episode. The whole Gospel's been moving to this point. And if you hadn't taken a big inhale of the Gospel of John yet, the next chapter begins the last week of his life. Everything before now has been leading up to the fact that he, John has substantiated Jesus is the Lamb of God. Now He's going to walk you straight to the cross where He dies in your stead. Here's our application. Twofold, beware of pride, oh God, help. Our teleos study, if you had not dusted it off in a long time, is an amazing treasure trove written by two retired former members of this church, Paul and Pat Knave. They were here for 10 years. They contributed a few volumes to our teleos series. And the notes in this little volume are such a helpful supplement to our meditations in this sermon series through the Gospel of John. One note from that study says, beware of pride. That's the application. Even when confronted point blank, the study said, with the power of Jesus' deity, the resurrection of Lazarus, some refused to believe. These eyewitnesses not only rejected Jesus, they plotted His murder. They were hardened. So hardened. That they preferred to reject God's son rather than admit that they were wrong. Beware of pride. If we allow it to grow, it can lead us into enormous sin and eternal damnation. Welcome the wounding of your pride. The reality is we're all wrong about a lot of stuff. And when the Holy Spirit brings to light where we're wrong out of compliance, living in disobedience to the Lordship of Jesus, humble yourself. Beware of pride. The old adage attributed to John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's application one. And finally, application two. The Father had appointed the Son to be the sacrifice for sinners on the cross. And for Jesus' sacrifice to be substitutionary on our behalf. The religious leaders had to condemn him under the law. So that's what John eleven forty five 45 to 54 is mainly about. Here's the legal declaration that Jesus must die. And it comes from the law abiding leaders, the Sanhedrin. It's a portrait of the unjust suffering of Jesus being played out beneath the absolute sovereignty of God. Or as Elizabeth Elliot put it, suffering is never for nothing. Why doesn't God do something about suffering? He has, He did, He is, and He will. Because Jesus suffered for our sins according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, we can be assured that those who trust Him alone for salvation never suffer without a purpose. We will one day live in a world where suffering does not exist. So when Paul looks back at the sufferings of Jesus, and he looks in at the sufferings of his own life, and he looks out at the sufferings of God's people, he doesn't recoil, he worships. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What glory? The glory of God in the face of the risen Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we do pray that we would trust You in plenty and in pain and I ask especially for all of us sinners and sufferers, all of us embodied souls, that You would allow us to look away from ourselves to Christ, to His suffering, His unjust suffering that happened precisely according to Your plan. And that You would help us to realize that In the Gospel of Jesus, you declared that none of our pain is ever wasted. In fact, you're using it to accumulate for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So give us grace like Christ to trust you. And thank you for the forgiveness that Jesus died to pay for for all the times that we haven't. And all the times that we've blamed you. All the times we accused you of wrongdoing and all the times that we said in an accusatory tone, why me? Why now? Lord, let us look to Christ and let us help one another, bearing one another's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ. Let us walk with Him. Thank you for gathering us, as this passage says so beautifully, into one. Help us to help one another. Trust Jesus. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.